seated. Well, as I say, we turn to Psalm 72. We already sang the last part of that, but I'd like to read to you starting at the beginning of that psalm, a psalm of Solomon, and yet a psalm that speaks not of his son, but of a greater son, one greater than Solomon that has now come, even our Lord Jesus, one whose kingdom endures forever, one who rules over all nations, one whose peace extends as long as the sun and moon Um, Some of these things, of course, can apply to Solomon's kingdom, which prefigured the kingdom of our Lord and many of these things, and yet it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the Messiah's reign. Let's read together from Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. Give Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will also be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth, and on the top of the mountains its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of Jesse, David, the son of Jesse. Are ended. Let's pray once more. Uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done in earth. We read such words with wonder and joy as we see the destiny of Christ's kingdom, the hope of his eternal reign, and the joy of all nations, the restoration of all things, the very creation itself being liberated from its bondage to corruption that Jesus should be the Savior of the world in truth. Oh, may it continue, and may his word abound and run. May uh, May it be received in nation upon nation, and may all kings give him the glory, which is his right. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, Americans want to be happy. Amen? Amen. Our Constitution, rather, I'm sorry, our Declaration of Independence says that we have the God-given right to life and liberty 
and the pursuit of happiness. Nevertheless, for all of its pursuit, happiness is declining. Did you know that? In fact, happiness has been on a sharp downward trend since the 1990s. In fact, a steep decline continuously since the 2000s. A global pandemic obviously made that trend worse in the last couple of years. According to a 2020 University of Chicago poll, Americans were the unhappiest they had ever been since they started collecting data in 1972. I mean, think about that. Not only have we had a downward trend, we're at the very bottom of where we have been as a nation since the beginning of the 70s, 50 years of data. And interestingly, they also reported this. We are at an all-time low in people saying that they are very happy, only 14% of Americans, combined with an all-time high in people saying that they are satisfied with their family's financial condition. 80%. 80% of Americans say, financially, we're satisfied. 14% said they were very happy. By most accounts, Americans should be happier now than ever. I mean, until this past year anyway, our income per capita has steadily grown and our standard of living is at an all-time high. And yet, happiness is at an all-time low. And as Americans, we say, what? If money can't buy us happiness, what hope is there for America? How can we find happiness then? Well, perhaps our cultural moment does make things especially acute but the answer to that important question of happiness is very much an ancient and a biblical one. In fact, as we've seen, the very first word in this book of Psalms pulls us in, grabs us with the offer of what we've been seeking all this time, the offer of a blessedly happy and happily blessed life. Oh, to be blessed with happiness. Now, as we've learned, the kind of happiness that we've described here is not merely the happiness of emotion, although it does include that. And we must not downplay the emotional quality of this blessed happiness, since there are in these very Psalms so many references to joy and gladness, delight and exultation. We must conclude that this blessed happiness here described must at least sometime overflow in emotion. But in any case, always have some positive buoying effect on us, even in the worst of our days. And there's plenty of bad days in the Psalms, right? So we understand. I say this by way of review. We've also said that biblical blessed happiness is much more than our emotional state at any moment. The Bible indeed describes a life, a condition, and a state that is supremely happy and fulfilled, and a deep divine sense of well-being that the world has nothing of, that on your unhappiest day, you have, in fact, far more reason to be happy than the worldling on his best day. Don't forget this. It's this promise 
of a blessed happiness that meets us not only on the very first page of the Psalter, but again and again, all the way through. Yeah, I hope you know the name John Donne, the celebrated English poet, perhaps most famous for his line, no man is an island, and for whom the bell tolls and all that. Um, in addition to being a, a poet, Dunn was a preacher. His sermons are available online. And in one sermon, he wrote, how plentifully, how abundantly is this word beatus, the Latin, blessed, multiplied in the book of Psalms. The book seems to be made out of that word blessed and the foundation raised upon that word. Well, Dunn is right. Although the sense of this particular blessedness, as we've seen, is happiness. Uh, there are two words translated blessed in the book of Psalms. Uh, well, at least in my New King James. Uh, it's other translations, like the New Revised Standard. It's always happy. They, they always divide it. Here in the New King James, sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's blessed. Uh, the, the, this uh, word that's perhaps a little less common rather than the word that we use to bless the Lord or to receive special gifts of blessings. Uh, this is the blessed happiness or the happy blessedness that is emphasized here. So the point is, Dunn is right. We might paraphrase his words slightly in order to say that the whole book of Psalms seems to be made out of this word happy, and the foundation is raised on this happiness that is laid at the beginning. This word for happy, ashray, runs like a bright thread throughout this beautiful book. Even in the sad, we, fi we find references to the happy, uh, even as the Apostle Paul had this uh, paradox that he described as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Yeah, there's lots of reasons for his agony, and yet even more reasons for his joy. And so we, we find ourselves in this paradox in the Psalms. But, but don't forget the joy. We began at the beginning with Psalm 1. With the, from the very first word, we found the promise of happiness that is set up front for emphasis, that, that to be happy, to be blessedly happy, we must begin to delight in the Torah, the, in the law of the Lord, and meditating in it day and night, we will find a pathway to not only delight, but fruitfulness, rootedness, and perseverance, as though we were trees planted by the river whose leaf never fades and who bears fruit in season. This will lead our lives, we are taught, in the paths of goodness to dwell in the house of the Lord, and we will avoid evil companions avoid destructive counsel, and avoid the ruin that will eventually come upon the wicked on that day of judgment. Well, that's just an overview of the first psalm. And perhaps people would not think that they could find happiness in the law of the Lord. Happiness in the law of the Lord? Well, we've bought the devil's lie that says that God's law is that which stifles happiness. But unexpectedly, the psalms begin by telling us the very opposite. The law of God is the key to your happiness. This is the way. You must start here. And that psalm begins by weaving together what we need to show us the way. There is God's law, first. There is sin, second. There is holiness, third. There is happiness, fourth. Woven together. 
For when the Bible moves in, sin moves out. When sin moves out, holiness moves in. When holiness moves in, happiness moves in too. But as, as frankly has literally happened in our own country, in its laws, in its courts, in its schools, and other things. When the Bible is removed, sin rushes in. When sin rushes in, holiness leaves. When holiness leaves, what do you know? Happiness leaves too. The Psalms begin by saying, you know, the secret to happiness is for you to reverse this process and begin where you must begin, by delighting again in the law of the Lord. And then in Psalm 2, we're given the second half of that introduction to the Psalter. And if Psalm 1 described the happiness of the one who delights in God's law, Psalm 2 describes the happiness of the one who trusts in God's Son. For the Torah, the law of the Lord, is definitely not enough. And the second Psalm tells us the rest of the story. Happy are all those who put their trust in Him. And all the rulers and nations of the earth are called to kiss the Son and to rejoice with trembling before Him if they are going to know true blessed happiness. The other important part of the story. But then from there, we have gone to see a number of other elaborations and descriptions of how this happiness works out in our lives, beginning with the, the instruction or the Torah of the Lord and the Son of God, we, we find in Psalm 32 the happiness of the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the happiness of the man to whom the Lord does not impute his iniquity. We found in Psalm 40 that happy is the one who has made the Lord his trust. Psalm 112, happy is the man who fears the Lord. And Psalm 119, happy are those who seek him with their whole heart. Because we find again and again in all these ways how closeness to God and true happiness are brought together. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord, Psalm 144. Happy are those in whose hearts are pilgrims' ways to his temple, Psalm 84. This blessed happiness that we have found comes from a close and trusting relationship with God through his Son, according to his word. Seeking him, singing his praise. And so all these things are just facets of this jewel of happiness, and as we've seen, that happiness comes especially also when we relate to our fellow human beings in a godly way. When we relate to God, when we relate to people in a godly way. Psalm 41, happy is the one who considers the poor. Psalm 106, happy are those who keep justice, who do righteousness at all times. Here, once again, we find that God-likeness, the imitatio dei, the happiness that we find in it extending ourselves to others and treating others in the same loving way that God has treated us. This, says the book of Psalms, is the way to a happy blessedness, a blessed happiness. This is our study so far by way of review. The Psalms keep asking us, look, do you want to be deeply happy, profoundly, unshakably, permanently happy, for when you see these joyful blessings of the godly, often displayed next to the empty, vain delights of the wicked, this stark contrast urges us to choose the greatest happiness of all. As though to say, these happy blessings that God has poured out 
are so beautiful and compelling that if you were a sane man or woman, you would want these rather than the temporary thrills that are bound to fail you. This is the very thing that Christ has come to do, to take us, as it were, by the hand, starting back at the beginning, and take us away from a foolish and destructive search for vain happiness, and to bring us to true happiness, which is found in God, which is found in delighting in his commands, in learning his ways, in seeking his face, in being a pilgrim with him, and so forth, to learn how to live his life. Christ has come to make us truly happy. Augustine wrote this in his confession. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. That's just a great summary of our study so far. Now, where does this leave us? Well, if we are in Christ, I say our life is wrapped up in him and his in us. Because he lives, we too will live. And this means that we have a happiness the world can't take or touch. Jesus tells his disciples what it will mean when he rises from the dead. He says, your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Oh, they had, they had hard days ahead, but they also had a joy that no one could touch. Our culture still says, with the counsel of the wicked in Psalm 1, follow your heart, you do you, live your authentic life if you want to be happy. Such platitudes imply that the key to happiness is found deep inside you somewhere. The Psalms disagree. They say it's not inside you. It's outside. The key to happiness is to find Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and to walk according to his word. And that is definitely the emphasis of the psalm before us this evening, the happiness, the blessed happiness that we enjoy as being members of Christ's kingdom. Christ was sent into the world on a mission, and we usually view that mission from a very personal perspective, which is gloriously true, that Christ has come to be our Savior. But there is a bigger perspective to Christ's mission, which is given again and again in the Bible. In fact, at the most critical points in the history of redemption, we find this emphasis, God promising Abraham, Abraham for instance, that in his seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. God promising his people again and again, he's going to raise up a son of David who's not only going to restore the house of Israel, but bring his salvation to the nations. That now the earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Romans 15, where we'll be finishing this evening, summarizes that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers that the nations might glorify God for his mercy uh, as it's written and so forth. Christ's mission, in which we also participate, is to glorify him among all the nations 
and to bring his salvation to this great wide world. To rescue it from its dominion in darkness. And no psalm, I think, receives a uh, gives such a beautiful and sustained statement of the joyful result of Christ's kingdom going to the ends of the earth than here in Psalm 72, a psalm that tells you why his kingdom is so great and joyful. And while some aspects of this psalm, indeed, as I said earlier, can be applied to Solomon and our other sons of David, allowing for some poetic exaggeration, ultimately, it's clear this can only be a song of the redeemer of the world. His kingdom is to be everlasting, universal over all nations, securing peace with God and goodwill among men, all kings, all nations being brought to submit to him in love, and through him all the earth being blessed. It's a fulfillment of the promise to the seed of Abraham. The language, by the way, so similar to other passages like Isaiah 11 or 60 through 62 and elsewhere, that just as they are messianic and must be, so is this. So we read here of the glory and universality of Messiah's reign in Psalm 72, and I'm going to give you five brief reasons why we are always to be happy to be the citizens and subjects of such a king. His kingdom is righteous, verses 1 through 4, eternal, 5 through 7, universal, 8 through 11, compassionate, 12 through 14, and prosperous, 15 through 17. Righteous, eternal, universal, compassionate, and prosperous. First, righteous. Uh, the word righteousness uh, occurs uh, three times in the first three verses with the cognate, or I shouldn't say cognate, with the similar uh, emphasis word justice also uh, occurring what, at least twice. Verse 1, may the king be given righteousness. He'll judge the people, verse 2, in righteousness. Verse 3, his righteous judgment will bring forth the fruit of prosperity. And it, uh, he's going to deliver or bring justice to the poor of the people. Some of you have the old translation, he'll judge the poor. You're like, why is Jesus judging the poor people? Uh, we, when we say judging, we think of punishing. But in the Bible, as I've explained, it doesn't usually have a negative connotation. To judge is to bring justice and to, in, in context here, protect the innocent and helpless and deliver the poor and the needy. And, and that the Lord is the judge of the widow, we read elsewhere. It means that he will protect her. And it, when the need arises, hear her cries and vindicate her. We, we have a judge who is determined to help the poorest and most defenseless of the people. And it's hard to get justice when you're poor, but not with our king. We are to be happy because no matter what injustice there is in the nations of this world, which does continue for a time and is painful, we worship the King of Kings who does hear our cry and says, I will break in pieces your oppressors. Even in this earthly life of our Lord Jesus, even in the earthly life of our Lord Jesus, we saw how he was continually befriending the poor and the needy, defending them from their enemies and their accusations, both the religious leaders and the Jewish rulers, delivering them also from the tyranny of evil spirits and supremely at the cross, delivering him from the most wicked one of all, 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So he's translating people into the kingdom of the Son uh, of his love and through death, destroying him who had the power of death, even the devil. So that was even in his earthly ministry, now much more seated on his throne as the light of the gospel breaks on the nations. We find even here in this land of, of, of gospel heritage that oppression and injustice and corruption recede at the brightness of his rising. And the focus of these verses is the righteousness of his reign and what it means for his people, for the nations, and of course what it will perfectly mean one day for the earth when his kingdom is fully come. Do you know this righteous king, the joy of his help and protection? Is he the one to whom you appeal when righteousness has failed in the earth? Is he your judge in the positive sense of the word who will hear you and help you? Or only in the negative sense, one who will give you the condemnation you deserve. Happy, happy, happy are those who know the Lord our righteousness. For he is the one who brings the justice to the earth. Hallelujah. Secondly, his kingdom is eternal. Verse 5, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Other references in the psalm. On the shore of time, we, we, we see the shipwreck of the great empires of Caesar or the Mongols or the Ottomans and Napoleon. Spurgeon writes, how they like shadows flit before us. They were, but they are not. Jesus forever is. We have a, a kingdom that is justly to be celebrated, a, a, a land to whom we belong that will inherit the earth. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And over the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. During the uh, French Revolution, Voltaire and others attempted to overthrow the Christian religion and its do dominance, replace it with a kind of religion of reason, and even had temples to reason consecrated. Voltaire made a great pronouncement that there would be a day when the name of Jesus Christ would be remembered no more. Well, I, I heard about one minister who was taking a tour of the Louvre in Paris where they have the chair of Voltaire and the, 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 uh, the uh, guy in the, in the museum said, that's the chair where Voltaire pronounced that there would be a day when Jesus Christ and Christianity would no longer be remembered and it would be a part of the dust of history. And the minister said, that's the chair where Voltaire said that? Yes, that's the chair right there. He leapt over the rope, he sat in the chair, and he said, well, I say Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. And that is, the, that is the word that is coming to pass. If you are discouraged in the present, I understand and agree with you. The psalmists agree with you in so many ways. Yet, if the troubles of this day have taken away your joy, they say, just, just look ahead to this kingdom, for your future is bright. Your destiny in this kingdom forevermore is of a joy that shall have no end. 
you have the joy of a righteous and eternal kingdom and universal to boot. Number three, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The, the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. The, the river mentioned here is, of course, the Euphrates, the kind of center of the ancient world in their thought. His dominion being from the, the center of the world to the ends of the earth and even the isles and so forth, uh, sending him tribute. In the 49th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, God says to his son, his servant, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because the Lord who is faithful. Christ is made the Lord of all. Here is the source of an eternal joy that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Presently, he reigns in the midst of his enemies. It's a sad fact, but we see the end of these things. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and he shall reign forever. And that's our joyful hope, no matter who takes the Senate or the White House. Today, we pay too much attention to what our rulers are saying and not nearly enough attention to what God has said. We are a generation that is impressed with the ungodly rulers and unimpressed with the blessedly happy ruler, the happiest one of all, as Jesus is described at the end of this psalm as the one who sits on his throne and smiles. He's got it all under control. And he will bring all nations under his dominion. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. It's a righteous kingdom. It's a compassionate kingdom. Verses 12 through 14. Uh, compassionate. You know, uh, he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor and him who has no helper. It was the elder President George Bush who called for a kinder and gentler America in the last uh, century. But America, for all that rhetoric, did not become kinder nor gentler. But the reign of Christ will have a different effect. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. In his earthly ministry, we read of him healing the sick, caring for widows and orphans according to their needs, showing mercy, feeding multitudes, raising the dead. Pictures of a compassionate rule which will have no end. And verse 14, even though we still suffer, precious now is the blood of the saints in his sight. In this life, we will still have tribulation. The reign of Christ has not changed everything yet. We must through many tribulations into the kingdom of God. But he promises a day when his compassion will be fully known and vindicated. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And even now, he teaches his people. He teaches the world his compassion and the joy of it. I'll just mention uh, some recent studies, um, a stark contrast to this sharply declining happiness in our nation over the last few decades, um, how much happier Christians are than non-religious people. One study reported those who attend church seldom or never 
26% of them say that they're very happy. Of those who attend church monthly or less, 31% report being very happy, some improvement. Those who attend weekly, 43% report being very happy. That's a big difference. By the numbers, 2020 was one of the unhappiest years in recent memory, if not actually, we should say, uh, since 1972 when we started collecting data. But there's one subgroup whose mental health actually improved in 2020. Can you guess? Those who still attended worship. Yeah, all these churches that were shut down. Yeah, people suffered. Um, one subgroup actually improved. The only one to improve in 2020 uh, that I've seen here. Uh, you want a happy life? Follow the science. I am the science, says the Lord. Come to worship every week. I am the science. Join the truly happy people who know the love of Christ. You come here, you will be blessed and happy. And fifth, and finally, it's a prosperous kingdom. Uh, given here in terms of gold and grain and fruit, ancient measures of prosperity. The psalm pictures a day of the riches of the nations being brought into the kingdom of, of Christ and his reign, the tops of the mountains, which are not the place to grow crops, that even the, even the tops of the mountains will be full of grain, the waving like Lebanon, a very rich place. And um, although we condemn the error of the prosperity gospel when people are seeking the gifts rather than the givers, we must also recognize that all these pictures of the prosperity of Christ's kingdom are, are, are ultimately fulfilled in the very restoration of the earth itself, the deliverance of the earth from its groaning bondage to decay and futility and vanity, that the earth itself should be restored and renewed. And dwelling, we will, we will dwell in a kingdom of untold prosperity, streets of gold and gates of pearl. Even now we find that the lands where Christ is honored know a remarkable level of prosperity as we have received gospel blessings in anticipation of that great final day. This has proved true that as we do seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we find that all these other things shall be added to us. And it, it was not capitalism and democracy that has blessed us with all these things, as much as we enjoy those. Capitalism and democracy that we're trying to export to the other nations, right? Nation building in the Middle East and so forth. Capitalism and democracy cannot make the difference those things came with and as a result of gospel blessings. And as much as nations enjoy gospel blessings, those things are safe and secure or growing stronger. Those things alone will not make a difference in the nations. And so on this Thanksgiving week, please do not praise democracy and capitalism for all the rich blessings you've enjoyed. Please praise the Lord. Some years ago, Ronald Reagan spoke to the National Association of Evangelicals at the end of his speech. Well, it was a very impressive speech. They were all cheering wildly. It was a new day for what became known as the religious right. Uh, Charles Colson then got up after Reagan. And the first thing he said was, well, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. <laughs> Well, as, as, as great as it is to hear all these things, just remember, 
you sing. The hope of the world is Jesus. And, and people want God to bless America with peace, prosperity, economic vibrancy, fine. But they seem to want all those things without God. A state of affairs that has no long-term viability. As the Lord has said, as the history of the world has proven, ungodly people live ungodly lives with all that that entails for their nations. Corruption, oppression, and misery. Even in this life, people begin to experience the eternal poverty that awaits them. But blessedly happy are those Christians who know Christ's care now, those nations in which God's people exert an influence, those who look forward to a kingdom and glory that no eye has seen or ear has heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, a happy, prosperous kingdom. America is not the happiest place on earth. We're getting less and less happy. The happiest kingdom is the one that we read of. Of the home had carved three words. Three words which he apparently wanted to remind him of the sum of the Christian life or whatever. Sobriety, justice, piety. Nathaniel Ward read that. Sobriety, justice, piety. Hmm. Okay. He, he, he hired a craftsman to carve one more word. Laughter. <laughs> yeah. Nathaniel Ward, the Puritan? Yeah. Laughter. The oil of joy has anointed our Lord. His reign is a happy reign. He is able to smile at all his foes. His kingdom has joys forevermore. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations, and all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who get down to the, to the dust shall bow before him. Christ is its Savior, and he will not rest until all of his elect are called safely home. And the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever. And when you hear the songs of the season this year as you go through the mall or walk in the windies or wherever it is, it's a pretty amazing that we have that. Just remember how happy we are. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Is it your joy? the nations shall call him happy. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Well, let us pray. We thank you for King Jesus, and we pray that the nations would indeed be compelled to say what a happy, joyful, glad delightful king. We now do not yet see all things subject to him, but we see him for a time made lower than the angels, now clothed, clothed, are crowned with honor and glory. 
And so we pray, O Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be done in our lives. May it be done in this congregation. May it be uh, with power done among the nations of the earth. Bring the nations under the glad reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and in the meantime, take from us our sighs. Give us a song in its place. If, if weeping must endure for a night, may joy come to us every morning. You have given us such hope. You have given us the oil of joy for the heaviness of mourning. You've replaced our sin and sorrow with Christ's righteousness and mercy. And we pray that we would more and more experience some of the hope and the delight and the glorious reign to fetch some of it from the future to enjoy even today. Speak to us in your hearts by your word. Cause it to go forth and not return void. May we be happy to be the subjects of such a king. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well.